I was I was gonna talk a bunch of shit about Gaylord not being here, but uh, he's here now. He had to hit record for some reason. I was clicking on record and it didn't work. I don't know. Um, everybody's rightfully making fun of me right now, but um, I was pushing that shiny ass red button, dude, and the this wasn't working. I don't know. He's like the uh, the private you don't trust. You take the firing pin out of his rifle, set him out of control. <laughs> <laughs> so that voice you hear uh is if you're a twitter user is one of your favorite twitter thread writers that's voodoo we've been talking about doing one of these podcasts for quite some time and just finally schedules aligned and i screwed it up uh here we are 23 minutes late me fighting technology uh but but we're here so uh, voodoo. Is there anything you want to say about yourself before we get started? No, I'm, I mean, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you know, at least a little bit of who I am. And if you don't, if you're not on Twitter, you definitely probably should not be. But if you are and you don't follow Braxton or I, you probably also shouldn't do that. But <laughs> if you're in the mood to, to follow one of us, you should, but, um, just, a just a normal guy. If you don't, haven't read a thread, don't know who I am, just a normal guy, a, a veteran, and just looking to to make the world a little bit better place and help people understand sort of what's going on out there. I'm not a book writer. I'm not, you know, an ATF expert like some of your guests have been. I just, just am a dude, man. You get, uh, sometimes on Twitter, you'll, you're, you're one of these guys that's very good about this. Like, you will... Uh, when you're arguing with some as a veteran type person uh, <laughs> on social media, you're very good about not trying to or, or sort of cut off their appeal to authority of the knees and never uh, like add your background into the discussion other than to just say like I'm a veteran too. And maybe you'll say like I'm a veteran of, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. Now what? Like that kind of thing. But is there anything you would want to say like specifically beyond? Cause I know a little bit about you, not, not a lot by any means, other than I know that you probably work for uh, the CIA other, other than that. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything you want to say about like your background? Yeah. I, uh, it's a little, little interesting because I know there's a, just a general disdain for the officer corps in general. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit on this podcast, but uh I was a combat arms officer, an infantry officer. Um, I did some other things, um, but then sort of the, one of the reasons I hate that appeal to authority so much is it doesn't doesn't mean anything, right? Like as a as a veteran, and if you went through you know Fallujah in '04 or Nazaria in '08 or any of the other little incidents, you know Ramadi in '05 '06 when you were there, it makes you an expert at your personal experience going through that thing. It doesn't make you an expert on the Middle East. It doesn't make you an expert on Islam or, you know, strategy or any of those things. It just makes you an expert at your view of things. So when people try to use that appeal to authority, you know, if I don't get to use it, neither do you. And that's what really annoys me about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. And I, I love that you always do that because it is, uh, in some sense it is like low hanging fruit, right. To be like, now, now sometimes you can bust it out. Like when someone's like, uh, 
you know, what, what do you know about combat or whatever? And it's like, well, I mean, I know what it felt like to, to be there and experience like a two way range for the first time or the, you know, fifth time or hundredth time, depending on who you are and this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but you're totally right beyond that. It, it is meaningless. I mean, well, I, I'll tell you one, can, one spot that is good is when uh, Ukraine posts these pictures of these war tourist LARPers and their, their kid is perfectly clean and they look clean. And that's a perfect time for, as a veteran, you don't look like that if you've been living in a hole in the ground for six weeks. Yeah. 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 Fair. And, and, and in, in some circumstances, uh, some tactical training stuff, you know, you might be like, well, that's about the dumbest way to clear a building I've ever seen in my life or something like that. But, but yeah, beyond that, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's mostly useless, honestly. And I, I appreciate that about when you go to take, take people down, you know, with some, uh, with your Harvard, Harvard talk or some shit like this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I like that about you. And so I'm just glad that like, maybe we just clear the air voodoo's um, infantry officer and O's are gay, but this one's like, okay. Um, <laughs> it's tolerable <laughs> and is definitely like ex- an experienced guy. So, uh, let's just put the, like, put those cards on the table. Like this is not some freaking fag that, you know, never saw a stitch of, war and has like his opinions on napoleon and whatever else you're <laughs> tweeting about that day you know what i mean yeah that's uh and that's sort of an interesting segue from twitter is because you tweet about napoleon and people have all their opinions and you know people's opinions are cool but it's the people i wrote a, a thread on i wrote a couple threads on mongolia and the mongol empire and I know you get people making wild claims all the time that you're part of big fridge or big, whatever, but (laughs) there's, there was one guy who called it, uh, it was like the, the myth of the Mongol empire. Like it wasn't a thing. What? And I was like, what, who are you? And they're like, Hey, it's the internet, man. You can say anything you want out there. (laughs) (laughs) Like there, there was no Mongol empire. That's what this guy said. He called it the so-called Mongol empire. And I was like, Whoa, (laughs) <laughs> i mean there 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 are uh hundreds of thousands uh to millions of corpses depending on like your your read on that uh okay. that would disagree with you you yeah. know what i mean if you, if you don't think that there was an empire yeah i, I don't know what to tell, like how do you argue with people like that like uh, you win like take it <laughs> yeah you really can't it, man I, I was so tempted to go a direction i'm not going to right there yeah. though. I, I was gonna take it into like one of these boomer things and you know what I, this this might be a thing to bounce off of you i have noticed recently uh on social media that a lot of the stuff that we pin on boomers is actually early gen x like almost every time it's not the boomer generation. We just call like everybody calls them boomers and, a, and sort of tr- like they kind of blend the early Gen X with some of the flaws. Like they take what they do is they make like this amalgam of some of the flaws of the boomer generation and then uh, assign that to everything that's happened like during kind of early Gen X. And then they just call all those people, people boomers. 
And it, it's really like most of the time, if you're one of these people that does this, most of the time, you're, the person you're arguing with, one, is a late Gen Xer. And two, the argument like or the thing that you're mad about is more likely to have been like late Gen X than Boomer too. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, go ahead, please take it it's, from there. It's, it's kind of like a, a rolling obsolescence. So like the scale of what a boomer is, is, is always pinned. It is so far back in time to where we are now. Right. So like, as we go forward in time, the boomer will drag behind and eventually like, the Gen X will be the boomer and then the Gen Z will be the boomer and then the millennials will be boomers. And it'll just be, you know, the three generations from now calling the generation of today boomers, because like, that's the term of just scorn and contempt that people have for, for the old. Yeah. And I think the, one of the things they're really mad about is like trading, uh, like trading some, I saw a thread written by a guy that I like quite a lot on Twitter and he was talking about how these guys have, they will, they'll get on Twitter or Facebook or wherever and they'll talk shit about the younger generation. And the thing they'll lean on is how great their childhood was because they played, you know, kick the can or whatever, whatever it was, you know, night games and this kind of stuff. And the younger generation played mortal Kombat and street fighter and you know, uh, you know, just whatever. And, uh, they'll lean on that despite never becoming interesting people in their own right, like in their own life, because they traded the opportunity to become, an interesting person in their own right for like video games, just like a weird way to view a generation. Um, but they assign this to boomers and honestly that you, again, you're, you're talking about like late gen Xers, like, let's just put it on the table. The, the late gen Xers are the Joe Rogan's of the world. Like, it's that generation. Like I think younger people think Joe Rogan is younger than he is. And he's great. Like I'm not, you know, he's a great person. I, I would say, um, he, he, I don't know the man. He seems like a great person and he's done like some really interesting things and in media has become like probably the biggest American media figure ever. Um, like it's more important to have been on Joe Rogan's show than Johnny Carson or something like this. So it's, he's really like kind of become his own, institution and that's pretty neat but that guy is not a boomer he's what is he like 55 or something um, i think so i like I, I don't know how old he is i don't i don't know him personally at all but 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 this is like the generation you're talking about he looks old to you because he is an older guy now granted he's like in shape um or excuse me he looks younger than he should look because he's you know a very in shape and you know, kind of a give the world the what for type guy, but he is the same age as most of these people that you're calling like boomer retards and all this. It's like, that's, that's the generation you're talking about. The Bill Burrs and Joe Rogans and, um, I don't know, like the Jocko Willings or whatever. Those are, those are rare, very rare people. The people you're encountering on 
Twitter that are like 55 and have like certain opinions. They're not these kind of guys. Like these are avatars of a good way to like <laughs> to, to live your life. Like, and I'm not trying to dog on my older Twitter friends, but like gen in general, like it's really that uh, generation that you're arguing with. It's, it's not boomers, you know? Well, it shouldn't surprise you that most people on the internet don't know what they're talking about. Well, yes, that's fair. <laughs> like it's just the inaccuracy is sort of like a feature at this point. Like, I'll just say what comes to my mind and I won't even, you know, look it up a little bit before I post it because it's just easier. Right. And so, you know, and that's pretty pervasive on the internet. It's one of the reasons I love the internet because it's just stream of consciousness and it allows your stupidity to like really be an indicator of how seriously I should take what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then there's, uh, there's another sect that just doesn't take Twitter seriously and it is just like trying to have fun. Huey, Huey Lewis is a good example of this, right? Like and anyone who listens and there's quite a few that, that are not on Twitter, these names are going to be meaningless, but for the Twitter people, like Huey Lewis is a great example of this. I know him personally. Um, not to be confused with Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> yeah, but I love it when people do that. So. <laughs> Are you actually Huey Lewis? Yes. <laughs> he's he's always so freaking funny when they do it too. Um, he's a great guy and a, an extremely successful person in real life, you know, and just a good dude. Um, but he's a guy that's on Twitter just 100% for fun. He doesn't take any of it seriously ever. None of it means anything to him. He'd close his Twitter account tomorrow and it wouldn't affect his daily life in any way ever. Like it would, it, it would be literally zero impact to his daily life. So there is like that portion, like that segment of Twitter, but that is a vanishingly rare. Uh, I have come to learn like vanishingly rare person on Twitter. Most of them it's, you know, pretty important, uh, to them. And listen, I get it. Twitter has become in some sense important to my life, right? Like it helps me, uh, get on other shows that sell books and stuff like that. So it's, it's important to me. Um, but I love that kind of person. And, and you are this kind of person, by the way, that like, if your Twitter account went away tomorrow, wouldn't, it would not change your daily life in any way. No. It would probably enhance my daily life, <laughs> being honest. <laughs> so what do you make of that? Like when you when you jump on, I don't want to make this a Twitter podcast, but just quickly, like, like what do you when you sign on to Twitter, what are you thinking about? Like like how do you approach Twitter? Maybe is a better way to put it. So I just a little bit of background about how I live my life and sort of our history that you might not remember. Um I joined Twitter like sitting on the beach one day. I wasn't even in someone's basement. Like I was on the beach and I was just reading this article about this person who had claimed she'd been in a cult and she was a army officer and, and whatever else. And I just went and looked at it. And some of the stuff I saw was just so stupid. Like I was like, I have to comment on this. And the only way I could comment was if I like started a Twitter profile. And so I did that. And I started commenting and I had like no followers for like months because like all I would do is respond to this one person. 
and eventually she wisely blocked me. But then, like, you were one of the first people I followed, and then you threatened to block me one day. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, you had you had replied to some celebrity or some politician I don't remember, and like oh, I boy. in your replies I like added him, and I was like, "What do you we have to say about no. that?" And you were like, "I'll block you if you do that again." In your your Braxton tone that I supplied <laughs> all your tweets. <laughs> Well, the snitch tagging thing, I am, I am an ardent, I hate snitch tagging because it, well, it's, it's changed some with the Elon purchase, but before when you would talk shit, if they would snitch tag, then like an army of just like mass report bots would jump on, you know, bots could be like living, breathing bots with uh, yeah. healthcare policies, but meat, meat bots. Yeah. Yeah. They would jump on and then report you for nothing. And then you would just get suspended, even though you didn't violate any of the rules. So I was like very, and still mostly, I don't know. I've, I've had to kind of give it up a little bit because, but anyway, at the time, I block anyone who would tag these people because that was like what was getting me reported, you know, even though I would do nothing like against the actual TOS t- terms of service, I would get re- reported enough times that I would just get flagged and my account would get, you know, suspended. So I was like, yeah, I block anybody who does that. Yeah. But back to your original question, I think I don't want to no, regale please. people with our history and our past of <laughs> animosity and strife. Um, <laughs> But I, I sort of look at it like there's a huge community of people on the internet who, you know, they have feelings and they have thoughts and not all the time are those feelings and thoughts as, as fleshed out in reality as maybe they could be. Like one of the things that I see the most when I'm there is the, the conflation of, of micro and macro. You know, and people look at the army and if you go on Twitter, you would think the American army was in like a state of like fall the Roman Empire days. And maybe it is at a higher level. You know, they just had that recruiting commercial come out that basically everyone hated. Um, but, you know, you say that, oh, well, I don't have to worry about this because, you know, I have an AR and the army stocks and they can't take it from me. It's like, well. Maybe, but at the same time, the army is made up of individuals and those individuals come together in teams and squads and platoons. And some of those teams and squads and platoons are really good. And I don't mean to say that like the army would take part in gun confiscation, but a lot of people look at the the collapse of, or what they perceive to be the collapse of the army in a big macro sense. And they think that means that like, you know, first squad, first platoon, you know, first battalion 187th is terrible. And that's not the case at all. Like those guys and those fire teams and those infantry units, they're good. And I think it it bears in mind looking, especially when you see what's going on in Ukraine right now, you don't see like big battalion or big division level things. You see small units out there doing small unit stuff. And so it, it bears a little bit of, explaining to people that hey just because you know the commander of the joint chiefs of staff wears heels and does the walk a mile in her shoes and stuff that doesn't mean that the whole army is broken you know and you see that a lot in american history and i definitely don't want to make this a history lecture because people get bored and then fall asleep 
Um, but throughout America's major wars, the people who were leading the army at the beginning of the wars were really never the ones who were leading it at the end. You know, and it, the one example that goes counter to that is the Revolutionary War. Um, but any war that's lasted a long time, the Civil War, World War II especially, you know, those guys who are the peacetime generals and the peacetime general staff, they find their way to the door um, pretty quickly in a wartime scenario. You had guys in the Civil War like, you know, John C. Fremont, who was like an explorer. And he didn't know how to command divisions and stuff. And he, they let him try and he made a mess of it. And they fired him and moved an actual soldier in. And people got promoted. And, you know, Sherman was a colonel at the start of the war. Grant wasn't even in the army. You know, and these people, war sort of brings them to the top. And so just because the army is broken right now, possibly, it doesn't mean that it's going to be broken forever. You know, and and that's something that I see on the Internet. People, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm sort of waving the flag at people, but they, they forget how war not only changes people, but it changes institutions and countries, too. And, you know, if we have a major war with China or, you know, more likely at this point, Russia, um, we'll see how it changes America. And if it changes American society for the better or worse, I don't know, but it's going to do something if that happens. Yeah, this is a thing we've talked about privately on the on the phone before, and it's it's an important point to get out there. I kind of. Um, I definitely don't straddle the fence on this. I, I lean more for sure, lean more your way. Um, but I understand the, the Jesse Kelly's of the world that are like putting out, we're going to lose a major war, this kind of thing. I understand where that sentiment comes from, but the truth is like the, the army is enormous. And I think especially civilians don't realize how big that institution really is. So they see these figureheads, which, which are important. And I don't, I definitely do not want to downplay how important it is to have like gay nerds at the top of the army, like putting out PR, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, for whatever propagandist reason, but the army itself is an enormous place. And, there are, I guarantee you that there are tens of thousands of absolute studs in that army right now. Well, guaranteed. And if like, you know, to, to, to use a sort of a cliched metaphor of like, if the rubber ever actually had to meet the road, you would definitely see a, an upper, not an uprising, but you would definitely see like those people rise to the top, you know, the, the, you, we are still not a faggot country, even though we look like a faggot country and all of this, when it comes to war, like we're pretty good at it and we're pretty tested. And if things were serious, we would decide to be serious and all the shit would go away in within, I would say within six months, it would go away. Um, yeah, for sure. And, uh, I know I, I talk badly about non-infantry and non-combat arms types, but some of the smartest people I ever met working in various parts of the military were the logistics guys. You know, and what makes the American army 
better than everybody else. Our technology is better and we have more of it, sure. But the American army is the only army that can project power all over the world. Like no other country could do what we did in Iraq or Afghanistan. I don't mean the war. I mean, just sustaining hundreds of thousands of troops far from home like that. Nobody else could do that. You know, and, and Russia was in Afghanistan, but they had they shared a border with the Soviet Union. They drove trucks across the border. You, to supply Afghanistan, there was only three ways to do it, through the port of Karachi in Pakistan. And they had a tendency to burn your trucks as they drove by. Down through Russia, they would boat stuff to Russia and drive it down the Northern Distribution Network, or you flew it in. And to keep, you know, 150, 200,000 people fed every day in Afghanistan, where it's tough to get supplies in and out, is nothing short of a, a miracle. No army in history has ever done anything like that. And looking at it now, we're the only country that can do, I mean, Russia couldn't fuel its trucks 40 miles from its border. And they figured it out now, but, you know, they struggled and because logistics is hard and it's hard to practice combat logistics at home, right? Because you can talk about it you can lay out Gantt charts and all sorts of stuff, but you don't know what it's going to be like or the strain on your supplies. And so when you look at, you know, historical battles and historical generals, they're all focused on logistics strategically. And the American infantryman is great and we've got the best gear and we've got some pretty tough people, but it's our ability to keep that infantryman fed and keep him in bullets and keep him, you know, evacuated. I mean, give him a Burger King, you know, they had Burger Kings all over the place in Afghanistan and Iraq. Like who would even think that, like who would waste energy on that? There's a, there's a great scene in the battle of the bulls, which is a, wildly inaccurate historical movie, but it's all right. It's entertaining. But uh, it's based on a true, true situation where uh, the Germans overran an American like mail depot and the Americans were getting like chocolate cake sent from home. And like the Germans couldn't even string together like 40 miles of diesel to put in their tanks. And like Americans have so much fuel that they're just sending cakes from home to their guys in the front. And it's like, you can, to beat America, you have to interrupt that logistics chain. And some of the smartest people in the DOD work in that logistics field. And, and to be honest, some of the dumbest people work there too. But those, the dumb people are generally the, the military officers that get assigned there, especially the, the generals and stuff. Because it's uh, a lot of contractors and, you know, DOD civilians work there. I know contractors get a bad rap, but most of those contractors are retired majors or retired colonels or retired E8s. And they did 25 years in the military and they know what they're talking about. You know, some of the some of the most brilliant ideas I've ever seen came out of there. And some of the some of the dumbest ideas came out. Like I know it's a little bit after your time, um, but when they fielded one of the MRAPs in Afghanistan, they, they had a string where they lost a couple right in a row to, uh, to pretty big IEDs. And this general had the idea that the blast was like working its way through the exhaust system, like playing snake through the exhaust system into the cab 
and was blowing up inside the cab. And no matter how many times people told him that's, you know, physically impossible, he put his foot down and said, I want you to design a, an exhaust patch cover that was armored. And it would like sit on top of the exhaust and it would prevent this overpressure from coming up through the exhaust system. And these guys did it in like 90 days. They had developed and sourced and started fielding these things in, into Afghanistan. And it's like, this is a stupid assignment, but we're going to do it. And there's, there's nobody else who can do that. And so I think a lot of, you know, the black pill staff of America will lose a major war. And maybe that's true, but it's not going to be today. And it's not going to be in the next 10 years. It'll, it might happen. History tells us it definitely will happen. Um, but there's going to be some time because looking at the map, I don't, I don't see it. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, shout out to Idaho because probably that thing, uh, that exhaust patch thing probably got developed here in the INL because so much, <laughs> so much tech was, yeah, I, I just can't, I, I can't miss a chance to uh, shout out the best state in the union, but um, yeah. yeah, man, you're right. The, we, for some reason we have become addicted to, you know what it is, man? It's a little bit of like a, uh, you, you see this phenomenon in political discourse where everyone's called a cuck, you know, just like uh, for anybody who's not listening means that you or, or who is listening that doesn't know means that like uh, you would allow someone else to uh, have sex with your wife. Um, see, like a lot of this happening and that rely like that. The only way that you start to think that way and see that thing like showing up, like that idea showing up is in a, uh, like in a very safe, like very, very safe country. Otherwise it would be like worried about forcible rape of your wife and your, and I know it's like not, uh, like sort of fashionable we'll talk about this, but like in other countries, that whole cuckold idea is from like someone else coming in and like tying you up and your sons up and, you know, forcibly raping your daughters and children or whatever. And that just doesn't, I mean, there are instances of that, but like it doesn't happen like on a macro scale. So when you see this idea sort of cropping up in American ideology. It's like, even that, you know, as an insult comes from a place of like protection. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, it makes sense. And it, we've reached a point and Europe's a little bit like this parts of Europe. People say Europe and Europe's a big place. And believe it or not, the things that happen in Macedonia don't happen in, in, you know, Albania or France or wherever else. But that comes from like a sense of rich people need to introduce some fear or yeah, some, yeah. some setbacks into their life because their life is so comfortable that they don't have any any loss of control in their life. And so they, they crave this like loss of control or this this loss of power, you know, and a lot of times it, it revolves like you said, around like 
a stronger man doing what he wants and taking whatever he wants. And I don't, I mean, I don't understand it. Um, but Hey, there's a lot of things I don't understand the people of Manhattan do. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, those people are gay, but it's, but it's, <laughs> but it is like reflective of kind of where we're at. And the point I guess I'm trying to make is like, that's actually, um, a reflection of how powerful this country really is. Like when we were in Iraq, uh, we had those pogs, right? Those, uh, yeah, those, those coins. Yeah. Cause it costs too much money to send, you know, actual, like it was too heavy to send actual like American coinage over to Iraq. So our country was just like, I don't know if it, maybe this happened in Afghanistan too. I never went there, but, um, it costs too much money to uh, ship over the ocean, uh, you know, uh, dimes, nickels, pennies. I don't think we had any pennies. Nickels, dimes, quarters is all I remember. Maybe dollars, too. Maybe dollars. But anyway, ship those overseas. It was too much money to do that with actual metal. So they would just say, well, our credit's good, so you can use these like little <laughs> like yeah. pogs. Um, which when uh, you and I were kids, we would like hit them with a slammer or whatever and win from our friends, like that kind of thing. Um, basically, just like this little cardboard disc that said twenty five cents on it, and American credit's good for it. So uh, that was like an answer to a problem. No definitely for sure no other country could pull some shit like that off yeah no way absolutely no way and to, like to your earlier point like russia can't you were talking about like the power of projection or the power to project rather uh that used to be like the talk during uh, the early GWAT, like oh four oh five, when we were trying to feel ourselves out like who who is really like the everybody for sure America was like the powerhouse, but like who is the actual near peer, right? Like they were trying to fill that out. Well, like clearly Russia can't pull some menial shit, like just replace currency with cardboard, <laughs> you no. know, like they certainly can't pull that off 10,000 miles away. So I guess that question was answered, you know, and we still act like, uh, and there's some addiction to this, especially in right-wing politics, like somehow there is some other country, uh, specifically Russia, for whatever reason, um, they're very obsessed with this, but like uh, these, these things that are being tweeted about or Facebooked about or whatever, I don't use Facebook, so I don't, like whatever whatever it's called the post on facebook um or instagram or something they there's clearly like a disconnect b between like reality and like what's put online like about what's possible you know and and more importantly like what a near peer actually looks like because truly i mean i know it's a it's a goofy thing to talk about pogs but that's like, dude, I'm yeah, like, it's, a, it's a great example. Um, and not trying to get too Cormac McCarthy on this, this podcast with you. Um, Listen, bro, 
<laughs> we can go as deep on Cormac as you want to go, but go ahead. But I, I think there's there's a there's a mythological other that Americans measure themselves against that might not actually exist. And I think a lot of it is like a, a view of America's past success that we measure ourselves against. And we look at it and we say, is, is the army perfect? And we have this expectation of like perfection that the American army certainly has never had, but we demand it. You know, we have a, you know, I think I sat down and calculated the number of wars America's won versus the number of wars we've lost. And we had the one tie. And I think we were like 36, one and one up until like, you know, 2005 or six, whenever I did this. And so we've had a good, good record, you know, and Americans want to keep that going. And you look at Americans, you know, not to get too, you know, weird about Patton's that movie, but you know, he says Americans love a winner. And you look at a guy like, like Nick Saban, like Nick Saban loses two games, misses the playoffs and they're going to fire him now. And you got fans in, in Alabama. He's won 11 million national championships there, but he lost two games this year. He's done. He's washed up, get him out of here, get someone new in. And it's like, you're in, you're crazy, man. Like, but we have as Americans, this like, core deep desire to be the best all the time and everything and i think especially on the right wing there's that that level of pride that we just demand that we're better and we never have any setbacks you know i do think it's interesting though you know a, a lot of the right wing types are you know they say they're small government right i don't want the federal government involved in this i don't want it involved in that the one exception to that is national defense you know, and I want national defense to be as strong as humanly possible. Like defund, you know, the Department of Education and, you know, Health and Human Services and give all that money to the DOD. You know, that's what a lot of right wing people, that's their pitch. And yeah, it's a it's a plausible pitch because you really don't want to lose a war. You know, you really don't want people to die needlessly. You don't want another, you know, adventurism in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, but even the lessons that we learned from those wars sort of mislead us because, you know, people say, well, you know, the, the army couldn't contain Afghanistan. What, what use will they be in Appalachia and not to not pick on Appalachia, you could use Idaho or the Southwest or, or whatever, but like, you can't look at, at how Afghanistan ended and say the army didn't perform. You know, because every time the Taliban or the Haqqani Network or anyone came out for an extended period of time, they got crushed pretty handily. Um, and so they just sat back and said, hey, we'll we'll hang out. You'll go home eventually. And uh, we did. And they came back out of the mountains and said, OK, well, we're here again. And that's basically how it went. And so we learned a lot of lessons. And I think we're a, a vastly different, you know, I don't want to say conservative space, but we're, I guess you could say we're on the conservative side. Um, but it's, it's fascinating how we've as conservatives have gone from, you know, the, the big military, big, you know, national defense to like, should we be involved here militarily? Should we be, you know, in, involved doing that? You know, we've become a little bit more isolationist. You know, I remember in, was it 04, 05 when, 
you had Green Day making anti-war songs and, you know, you had country music making pro-war songs. And now it's, except for that one country guy who did a song with Zelensky, but like it's sort of flipped. And now the, the conservatives are more anti-war and the, the liberals and the leftists are definitely more pro-war for some reason, probably because they're not going to have to go fight it, but. Yeah, and because they're not gonna have to kill communists, like they, they, yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. You the uh, the point you made in there about Americans demanding, uh, or maybe not demanding, but like expecting excellence from the ground up. Um, the so uh, the wrestling program that I came up through was. Uh, a really, I mean, they they were coach sheriff did like, it was an incredible program. I mean, just it, it's hard to, it's actually hard to overstate how good that program really was. And he had taken his, he had wrestled for a guy called lad Holman and had, uh, you know, like just come up through a, a program of excellence where he was from and then brought that like over here. And one thing he did trying to kind of, uh, make add on to the point that you made earlier. One thing he did is we had these plaques on the wall in the wrestling room, not in the gym where other people could see them or anything like that. Just in our gym, he had these plaques bought every year that was, if you were a state champion, your name would be on the plaque, you know, on this wall. And so we had an entire wall covered and it was a big wrestling room just covered in uh state champions names, you know, from, you know, one side to the other of the room. And that was like a hearkening to the past. Like this is the program that you belong to. So every time you're sitting there running wall sprints or just whatever, you know, whatever conditioning you're doing, you're looking at those plaques thinking like, fuck, you know, there's been 500 of these guys before me and I want my name up there or whatever, you know, um, who am I to quit? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think we have that, uh, in spades, even in like our history and to give a little bit of, um, struggling to find the right, but to kind of address the, the concerns of the newer, the, the people that are jumping on this, that the whole world is ending. If you're an American thing, that part is not respected anymore. And that is, that part does, or that does worry me that we're now, I'm not worried about our army tomorrow, but like, the idea or excuse me, the thing that we're seeing where everyone before this day was bad. So who cares about their accomplishments? That part makes me really nervous for the future. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And that's the, that's one of the reasons I enjoy history so much because, because it links you sort of to the, the deeds of the past and yeah, everyone has some positives and everyone has some negatives, you know, it's foolish to say oh, that that guy was perfect. And then nobody in history was perfect. Everyone's got something they did that you could be upset about. But one of the 
places that Europe started to collapse. And, and Europe is a vastly different place today than it was even 100 years ago. You know, 150 years ago, it was vastly different. The countries interacted differently. You know, World War One was just over a century ago. You know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, it was normal for France and Germany to battle to the death. And now you couldn't even imagine. There's not even a border anymore. You just drive across it. Um, and you lose that link to your past. And when you lose that link to your past, and not only do you lose it, you're told to be ashamed of it. You know, and, and Europe sort of carved itself out of, of the fiefdoms and the kingdoms, and it made nation states. And America did something a little bit different, but no country really on earth with the exception of one or two um, former colonial countries was founded the way America was. America had an identity and America pushed that identity West basically, you know, and sure there were, there were a little bit different pockets of that identity. And, you know, people like to talk about, well, we're, you know, 11 nations, not 50 States. And, and that's fine. But the, the difference between someone from Tidewater and someone from New England was more in line than someone from Tidewater and a Lakota, right? So like you were, you were more the, of the same. Yeah. And America really made itself from nothing into a, a world power. And when you stop losing or you stop valuing that drive, and yeah, we certainly America could have done that differently. And there were things that America did during that time that, in the benefit of retrospect, you know, maybe we didn't have to slaughter every buffalo on the Great Plains to starve out the Comanche. Um, maybe we didn't have to do that. But it was the, the card that was played at the time. But to go back and say, well, America is a terrible place because 200 years ago you did this, that leads to just failure in the future. You know, you lose your pride in who you are. And you know, you're nothing without your pride. Yeah. It's also, uh, by the way, an apocryphal quote from Sheridan. He never said, um, that we should, uh, you know, kill all the Buffalo to starve the Comanche. Yeah, that's actually, I forget his name. I think he was from, uh, I think he was from K state. Um, Kansas state. Yeah. Yeah. Some kid, tried to write a thing on that and looked for it and couldn't, I forget which university it was from, but that, he, he Sheridan really never said that. That's not to say that there wasn't like some idea that like killing these Buffalo, like killing off a food source wouldn't be useful. It's just more to say that like market forces did that. Right. Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a top down idea. Like it's, you know, all these diversity hires, talk about like somehow you know sherman and sheridan got together and decided we're going to kill all these buffalo that's that really actually didn't happen it was a smart idea theory, you know? yeah and then by the way the indians this is a whole nother discussion but the indians were well on their way to exterminating the buffalo before we because market forces dude turns yeah. out like turns out that uh market forces work no matter what your skin tone is but but yeah i think that's a the 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 main sort of uh thrust of the argument is is accurate that 
the this idea that um uh, you know um Lee has tweeted about this and he and I have talked about this a bunch of times but the the best uh quote from Chief Chief Joseph is a man who would not defend his father father's grave is worse than a wild animal and I like that mindset you know um that idea that like white bird you know idaho is mine fuck you i'm gonna fight you to the bitter end because my ancestors are buried here and they fought to you know they fought the you know the crow and you know the shoshone and whatever and and stuck it out like this is theirs fuck you i like that you know, I, I think that is the right way to live and America used to think that like more broadly across this entire place. And the fear is that like, like to just kind of like, uh, com- uh compound on what we're talking about. The fear is that that doesn't matter to anybody more anymore. Um, and I'm not trying to make this like some kind of uh, religious discussion, but the materialist part of sort of upswelling in American culture, I think is part of why we are where we are, you know, uh, what you, you definitely don't have to be, a, a Christian or whatever to well, clearly the Nespers were not Christian. Um, you know, chief Joseph's father was certainly not Christian. Right. Um, yeah. but to respect the, the idea that this place is mine and my ancestors are buried here. That is the most powerful thing. And I, in my opinion, that is what drove America to be what it is. It it was the idea that like my ancestors crossed these plains, gave up so much. This place is mine. Fuck you. You know, this is mine. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you look like. Whatever. Like come get it. That is being lost, and I I think that that idea is being lost and that that does worry me, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. And I would take it a little bit more existential and say the fear of death is all encompassing in a lot of society. Now, you know, I wrote a, I wrote something about Roland and it was kind of long. So you probably didn't read it. And there were a lot of French words in there. So you definitely probably didn't read it. Um, yeah. But Roland was a, a guy in like seven, seven seventy eight, I think was the year he died, and he was a, a knight, a French knight, um, and he died in the you know Battle of Roncesvalles Pass between what was Spain at the time and uh, France, and the way he died was he basically stayed behind and like held off this army so the rest of his army and his friends and his king could escape. Um, and he became a legend for thousands of years. You know, people talked about Roland and he was forgotten in like the first 200 years, you know, after he died. But then, you know, they wrote this um, story called the matter of France and it was supposed to 
you know, just what we were talking about. It's supposed to bring out the pride of your nation in you. And they talked about Roland and they made, built Roland statues and there's still Roland statues um, out there today. And the, but the, the fear of death sort of because of the softness of our modern lives. And I don't mean to say that all, li- all people live soft lives. Now, I, that's definitely not true. There's people out there who live hard, hard lives, day-to-day hard lives. But in a general zeitgeist, America lives the softest version of America it's ever lived. And that's one of the softest versions of life that's ever existed on the planet. You know, you used to have knights die in the middle of a war in jousting tournaments, like fighting amongst themselves. Yeah, yeah. Like, could you imagine if, like, oh, who am I thinking of? It was like Trump Jr. rode out on a horse and jousted himself to death. Like, right. It's just not a. It's just not part of our society anymore. Like, death has stopped being part of life. You know, and and we view it as this sad, tragic thing, and a lot of times it definitely is, but you know, we've lost that he died well sort of view of history. And that that view of history is, I think, the best antidote to a black pill. People say, oh, we're going to die. I was like, yeah, you knew that. That was part of the bargain when you came into the world, that you were going to go out of the world somehow. You know, and don't fear dying well. And a lot of people say, well, you know, it's all it's all pointless. It's all nihilistic. Like, it doesn't matter. It's like, yeah, but it does. You know, every day that you live and every day that you can make the world a little bit of a better place is helping the world around you. And maybe it'll be enough. Maybe it won't. But if you don't do it, it's certainly not going to work. You know, if, if nobody takes responsibility to try to make their their town in Idaho or, you know, I live right outside of Blue City, so I'm sort of outnumbered, but that's all right. Um, I'll do what I can and I'll take my in this house neighbor to the range and I'll take my, uh, my, my liberal friends shooting and we'll have a good time. And I'll try to make it a little bit of a better place, you know, that, that to pass on to that next generation. And I hope I don't die in some, some crazy shooting accident where my, my uh, left wing neighbor accidentally shoots me. But uh, you know, if that's it, then that's it. But there's, there's no, there's no point in the fear of it, you know, saying, oh, well, nothing is more important than staying alive because that's just how cowards think, you know, and historically that's been the case. You know, the people you remember are the people who do great things in the face of extreme personal danger. You know, nobody remembers, you know, successful businessmen from history. You know, you remember JP Morgan because they've got banks and stuff now, but you know, if that bank went away, nobody would remember JP Morgan or Cornelius Vanderbilt or any of those people, you know, but you would remember, you know, Teddy Roosevelt because of the Rough Riders, or you'd remember, you know, Grant or whoever else because they did these things that were dangerous and they faced death and they've faced it bravely and they, they overcame it, you know, so that's sort of where I stand on it. I think we're on the same page because. I think it's definitely America is at a point where it needs to, it's at an inflection point and it's got to either absorb those values from the past, or it's just going to become like a, uh, a Europe with more Walmarts in it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's right. It's uh, we're at a yeah. It, it's funny, we the people that we know now. It you do see actually. Let me put it like this: you do see a craving for something like that, like somebody, um, a person like Jocko Willing's fame would be. Uh, sort of an example of this, you know, at least some guy that did put it on the line this one time, you know, uh, not one time, you know, I'm, that's not, that's not what I meant by that. But uh, this guy who did put it on the line and now he's, you know, moving on to, you know, building businesses or whatever, but he was a guy that put it all on the line and like went after it. And now he's popular. Uh who else? Like some of these other guys, um, trying to think of other names. And I'm just waiting for you to say Jesse Ventura. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know a ton about Jesse, but he was a UDT guy in Vietnam, right? Yeah, he's, I mean, he might be a boomer. He's from that generation. Yeah, but he was, but he was a real UDT guy. Yeah, yeah. Nam, he was right? not fake. He was okay. a real guy. Okay. <laughs> he was yeah, a real UDT guy. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know a ton about him, but like some of these other, you know, some of these other guys that have gotten like sort uh popular in the last little bit, you do see kind of a craving for the the old American thing uh cropping up, and I think that's great. But but you're right about your your point about uh life and death and yeah, well, they, I'm not I'm not going to go there. Not- one of the one of the things that I've talked about, is, I guess, is one of my themes is there used to be this this belief, and someone had a a tweet and it was the one of the best tweets I've ever seen that in a in a better world Prince Harry would have died leading a, a cavalry charge against some Prussian lancers because like mm. that's how it used to that's how life used to be you know and, and we talked about the Rough Riders earlier but there were some. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt was not some random cowboy who became a colonel. Like no, he was a, a pretty wealthy dude, and there he was, was some a debutant. Really, yeah, yeah, there were some really wealthy people who joined the army to go fight for their country. And throughout history, that's very common, and it's it's stopped. Could you imagine Jared Kushner taking a battalion into Iraq? Like. It's not a thing. Yeah, no, of course not. And I, it's the Teddy Roosevelt example is important because what happened with Teddy was that he recognized this early, this, this thing that you're talking about, he recognized early on and worked his, basically his entire life to become something like, uh, an old school American slash maybe even, British knight, yeah, not British knight, European knight. Uh, he, he sought out conflict in order to kind of prove himself, even though it was like the conflict was not necessary. Like he yeah. he went out of the out of his way to become this other guy, uh, or not other guy to prove himself. Same guy the entire time. That that's wrong to say become this other guy. But he went out of his way to sort of prove himself where, whereas like where we're at now, you would never see 
like the the AOC phenomena is like a good example of this. Like this whole thing of her trying to pretend to be somehow a lower class, like bartender type character, despite her upbringing. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, you just I, don't see anyone even attempting to the risk model. Now it's just, well, I'm one of you. You know. Uh, it's the best we can do in politics now, it, particularly on the left, is the I'm one of you model. It's it's certainly not like prove yourself like TR was uh, so uh, like it, 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 it was consuming for TR to to prove himself to the world. And he did it, you know, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, that's one of the reasons in a hundred years people will remember who that guy is. And in a hundred years, I'm I'm really hoping nobody remembers who AOC is, except with, with memes and, and gifts now is probably she's probably forever at this point. So what would be your advice to somebody that was an American kid coming up through the world now? I think my advice would be go with your gut because I have this, this view and I don't think I'm alone that kids know what feels right. And it's society that tries to mold them one way or the other, but you know, kids, especially boys. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy. So I know, you know, what, what that's like. I've been a been a man my whole life. I've never changed. So uh, I know you. They grow up and they want to play. You know, go out and do sports. They want to wrestle old. with each other. They want to fight. They want to do these these strenuous activities. You played lacrosse though, so <laughs> yes, that is pretty pretty rough. You know, but I mean, it's, it's not like wrestling where you just roll around with dudes here we go i don't know if we have time for this but go ahead (laughs) but no uh, don't don't lose that like you know i still go out and play lacrosse and i'm not old but i'm definitely older than some of the young guys i'm playing with but don't lose that desire to compete don't lose that desire to test yourself or to sweat or be in pain you know keep that foster it because that's you know i know there's not a uniform definition of manliness but but historically, that's what's defined men is their, you know, their strenuous lifestyle or their their competition or their, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, violent all the time. Just compete, you know, get out there and fight for something and work for something and get better. And I think if enough people do that, we'll be all right, man. Music to my ears. I love it, man. The uh wrestling slander aside i think it's yeah we used to be a country that embraced that and that's that's like i guess for the black pilled among us like what you just said is actually the best advice it's just embrace competition that was what made us so good like that was what made america awesome yeah and that's what made europe awesome you know, knights getting out there and fighting, constant struggle led to scientific discovery and capitalism. The competition there led to a, 
you know, a wildly more advanced society than anywhere else on, on the planet. And, you know, other societies had their turn, you know, they had the Islamic golden age and, and China was ascended at one point, but it's that, that struggle and that strife of, of capitalism and, you know, physical competition that put the West in charge for a while. And if we, if we lose that for enough generations, I don't know where we end up. Hopefully our AI is better than their AI. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Man, we would have to do another hour on that because (laughs) the AI thing is, uh, that's opening up a whole nother (laughs) box of worms, but but yeah. Thanks brother. I, I appreciate your time. And also the, the message of like, just don't be a pussy. I love that. Like just go out and do, go play, pick up basketball with your, neighbors or whatever just go do something yeah you know like and if your dog digs holes in the yard get a shovel out and fill them in like yeah with the dog for filling and and digging holes (laughs) yeah i do before we go though the i know our upbringings were different right but have you noticed that as kids you would see like football games and then it became like flag football games or baseball games at the park, you know? Um, and now like you drive by a park, there's no one there ever. Have you noticed that? Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. And, uh, I used to, to be involved in coaching and, uh, numbers for like outside sports, like really dwindled. And, uh, a lot of it was oversaturation. You know, a lot of parents, you know, especially in more affluent areas, my kids got to play travel this and they got to play travel that. And they got to, mm. you know, like your kid's six, like relax, yeah, like yeah, let yeah, them yeah. enjoy the sport. But kids get burned out. But uh, yeah. you definitely see, you know, less of an interest in like physical sports than you did, I think, in the past. Yeah. Yeah, it worries the shit out of me. I saw that um, even in my own family. Um, my, yeah, like my uncle's son, my uncle, yeah, my uncle played pro ball and watching his son, not as big as him, you know, he's a little bit smaller, great athlete, great kid, phenomenal kid, like just one of the best, like great kid. Um maybe not quite the maybe not quite the athlete his dad was and and definitely not quite as big as his dad was and you know some some you know some things involved there but from the time that he was gosh man like from the time that he was like 8 or 10 years old you know, he was going to California or Arizona or whatever to play baseball. And his dad who played, you know, pro ball, um, never did any of that. You know what I mean? Like you never even had that opportunity, but he, but I understand where his dad was coming from. His dad was like, well, yeah, but it wasn't the same when I was a kid. There wasn't all these opportunities and it's a skill sport and, you know, so you got to, but dang, you know, I wonder how many kids are just absolutely freaking burnt out. Um, and, and not just burnt out, but like 
have screwed their bodies up, you know, by way overdoing it, coming up through the sort of through the uh, ranks, so to speak, you know. Yeah, and you're talking about baseball, right? Yeah, yeah, baseball. Yeah, right. and so I've seen that with some kids I knew growing up where they were pitchers and they were throwing pitches that their arms were not developed yet to throw. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, kids needed surgery by the time they were 18. Yeah. And like, that's not a, that's not a, it's like runners, right? Like my dad is a long distance runner and he was, and uh, he's always injured. And he's like, well, it's just a running injury. I was like, yeah, but that's, you're breaking yourself doing this hobby. Like maybe you want to run shorter distances faster, you know, listen to your body a little bit and don't, don't break your body for your, your sport. If it becomes a chronic thing, but you know, these kids, you know, you would get specialization and there's a, there's a big push in, you know, high school and and below sports to eliminate specialization. So like you want a kid to play three sports instead of one sport year round. Yeah, you know, because then it lets them recharge, lets their body develop differently. You know, it's these, and I don't know how you play baseball in Idaho in February, but you, you know, don't. yeah, these kids who play sports year round, they are not. You know, they're like anything else. Like if a kid does nothing but play chess, they're a weird kid. You know, if a kid is nothing yeah, but play yeah. baseball, they're going to be a weird kid. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm a fan of the multiple sports thing too, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like we, growing up, we had the, you know, family friends and stuff, and also family I grew up in. So it was boxing, and then uh, baseball, and then later became like wrestling. But football was real big uh, in our family, and then basketball. But I didn't really, I liked playing basketball. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like, I don't know. I just never really cared about basketball. So then when wrestling became a thing, when I was in ninth grade, uh, I found out that I could go like fight some guy under a different (laughs) rule set. I liked, I liked that like way better. So I came way, like way late to the sport of wrestling, but I, I am a fan of the three sport idea. And then football, um, my high school coach was my high school wrestling coach was also our football coach. And he still is upset at me. And I, I'm not saying by any stretch that I would have been a great football player, but he's, he's still very upset at me sometimes that I didn't play football because I was probably like size or whatever. And I probably could have been okay at the high school level. I did for sure. Never no way been at like an NFL level, but at a small school probably could have been like an okay football player, but I was riding bulls and, and rodeoing and stuff. And so, yeah. And that's uh, one of the football is one of the, the places where like, I, I will. Okay. Boomer people who are like, you know, when I was a kid, that hit was legal. I was like, yeah, but you like, every time you sneeze, the left side of your arm goes numb. Oh, yeah, yeah. So like, I don't want to hear, well, that was fine when I was growing up because, like, you can't stand up straight. Or, <laughs> like, yeah, you yeah, yeah. You can't move your arm. You know? My wife and I talk, bro. Yeah, I'm so with you on this. My wife and I, and, and this is not to degrade American football. I, I like American football. I don't watch it or anything, but I like that America has a sport like football. Huh. Um, 
but my my wife and I talk about this quite often. We have three boys. I mean, I have four kids. I have one daughter and and uh, three boys, and we talk about this a lot. And I say, listen, if my kids are going to get brain damage, they might as well learn how to fight while they're doing it. So, yeah, for me, uh, I would rather they take no brain damage. And I was the guy who got brain damage on the way up, and hopefully. I can uh, mitigate as much as possible uh, the amount of brain damage they take. But, like, why don't we learn how to fight while we're doing it? Like, why don't we learn some kind of, like, useful skill while we're fucking our body up, right? Like, I, I, I just would rather them not. Like, think about how many kids blow their knee out at, like, 12 or 13. And this is... Bro, I'm not talking shit about football, but like, just think about it. How many kids get their bodies wrecked at like 12 or 13? Because listen, you run up into a, a guy that's like your size. I don't want to like dox you here, but like a big guy when you're 13 and he, you know, you're just playing football, no rules broken or anything. And you're a guy that's like going to be. Like I, like me, like a six footer, well, I was six footer, you know, like a 200 pound six footer kid and you're 13 and you hit him on a play and just blow his knee right out. Like, so, you know, not just football, but like the rest of his entire life is altered by that thing that just, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. it's interesting because I don't know if you know the history of American football at all, but you know, back to, I think it was Theodore Roosevelt was said, you have to change the rules of this game or we're going to outlaw it because people kept dying and they instituted the forward pass and all this other stuff that didn't used to be in the rules. And for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, it made the game safer, but now the forward pass and the kickoff and stuff is what the most dangerous parts of the game. You know, guys getting hit in the middle of the field, full sprint, hitting someone else, running full sprint, you know, trying to catch a ball. He's not looking, you know, that that's become the most dangerous part of the game. So the game has evolved and the, the danger has, has shifted a little bit. I think, I mean, I don't want to, you know, blow the horn of rugby at all, but rugby is a, I think the best version of American football, because if you're not wearing a helmet, you're less likely to do something stupid with your body against someone else's body. You know, and Americans get that sense of, oh, I've got a helmet, i got shoulder pads, I'll be fine. Like, I'll just hit yeah. this person running full sure. speed and, and nothing bad will happen to me. And I think you see over the course of time, that's not true, you know, but the collisions are much closer range in rugby. You don't really have yeah. often, you know, people running full speed into each other. You know, you get a little bit of that, but it's it's more of a of a maneuver sport, I guess. And you do have the scrums and you have the, the side outs and stuff. But, you know, football has evolved to the point where it's became dangerous. And so they, they overregulated it. And now it's it's tough to watch because, like, you don't know what's a penalty and what's not. Um, but, yeah, I mean, kids at that age you could, you know, break your knee, break your leg and you might not recover, you know, especially if you're not from a, a great place or you don't have access to great, you know, doctors and stuff, you might, you know, 
your bone might grow back crooked. So luckily kids are pretty, pretty bendy, pretty malleable, but you know, joints are joints and they break and not good. Yeah. And then you got to remember too, like Europeans are Europeans. So they can't, you know, so they have their sports that are developed around their, you know, not being as good as us and soft and, (laughs) you know, their shit is not as good. But uh, going back to the whole thing of uh, if you're going to take brain damage, you might as well learn how to fight. It used to be for there was there was a time there was it's still true to like it's still true to some degree, definitely in kickboxing, that if you're going to learn how to like fight. Minus American wrestling, then you need to go over to like Europe or Australia or uh, South Africa or somewhere like this, uh, or Thailand, of course, like with Thai boxing or something like this. You would you need to go there if you want to learn how to like really strike uh, and be like good at it, right? Right. Um, but most of those disciplines they have kind of lied to themselves about why they're tailored the way they are, the way they're tailored, the way they are is because Americans with American wrestling would just dominate them in any fight, like ever uh, they would just own them. Right. Yeah. Like, it, like you just saw John Jones do it to Cyril Ghani. He made it look like, like embarrassing uh, for like Cyril Gon's a great athlete and I'm not trying to uh, denigrate him here, but like it's an embarrassment, you know, and I saw it in my own uh, gym, uh, like that I worked at, like you get great wrestlers come in, you might have a great local fighter and an American wrestler comes in and boy, uh, does that become a problem? Right. So Americans have kind of changed like this, the striking sports thing. Like, uh, here's an example. Mike Tyson is thought of as one of the most dangerous and scary guys of all time. And he should be because the, the power and speed and not just that, but like the head movement and footwork, he was an impressive boxer, like an all timer. No question. Yeah. But if you would have taken Mike Tyson at his peak and had him fight Randy Couture at his peak, Randy Couture would have beat the fucking tar out of Mike Tyson. It was like, it's just not even close. You know, it's just not even close. But we've now reached this level where MMA has gotten big enough that some of these other guys, particularly kickboxers, uh, have learned that I can make much more money if I move to MMA. So I'm just going to tighten up my skill set as like a kickboxer and then move into MMA later and maybe have like a little half-hearted takedown defense, this kind of stuff. Um, and all of that is like, that's American wrestling. That's what that is. It's not freestyle and all this bullshit. Like people talk about like European wrestling, that stuff's, useful it's not that it's not useful it's just right. it's not americans uh folk style wrestling anyway anyway this is a whole nother conversation for a different day and i'm happy to have it but 
Uh, I was thinking about because you you tweet about MMA a lot, yeah. and uh, I don't I don't watch a lot of MMA. Um, I kind of wish I did, but I, I haven't. But I'm the way you talk about it is like really passionate. But do you also like assume and I think can't imagine that anyone doesn't know as much about it? And I think I'm kind of the same way about like like when I'll talk about history. I'm like, how do you not know mm. who the Anja fans were, or how do you not mm. know who the Ephesians were? Like, what's wrong with you? How did you grow up? Don't you love America? Mm. But like, <laughs> and uh, it's the same. Like yeah. we have these these topics that we're so passionate about. And I think there's so many topics out there that you can't be an expert at all of them. But that's part of the reason I love our you know big circle is there's stuff, there's people out there who are experts at a lot of different stuff that I didn't know about. And I think one of the, the great parts, you know, to bring it full circle is the great parts of the internet is you meet these people and you can pretty quickly tell that they know a lot about something you don't. And if you can just, you know, shut up and listen, and I've tried my best to like, you know, when, when people talk about stuff that I don't know about, I'll shut up and listen and maybe I'll learn something if I, if I'm lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky, you do a good, you do a great job with that, man. Um, you do a pretty, pretty dang good job. And thank you for, bro. We have, we have been bullshitting for not counting the actual podcast for like two hours. So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, just like I a regular phone call, you. man. <laughs> I know. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, I love talking to you, man. Um, do you have anything you want to, you want to plug before we? close it out no i mean um buy uh buy things you like and buy things that you think will improve your life i don't sell anything um but i will uh i'll plug big fridge and you gotta buy a stand-up stand-up fridge or freezer buy a good one man get buy meat from a farmer don't buy it from a store <laughs> my man all right love you voodoo he's voodoo uh on twitter i don't even know his, his exact twitter but it's, it's at uh, voodoo and six somewhere. voodoo six voodoo or voodoo six i don't remember one voodoo of six. <laughs> okay <laughs> all right all right he's my uh, friend he's he's great so thanks brother i yeah, appreciate thanks for having it. me on man have a good one you too i'll see you